Let's get started. We'll find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 9. Alrighty. So, as you come into the book of Hebrews, just a quick reminder, the context of Hebrews is this. The argument is, while the temple is still standing, some Jewish Christians were really struggling with understanding the new covenant while the old covenant was still trying to be enacted. So, imagine how difficult it would be for some people's theology today if a temple was instituted on uh, the center hill of Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders there started doing sacrifices again. What kind of issues, if you became a Christian out of a Jewish, uh, out of the Jewish religion that would have a complete non-exile bolster from that, what kind of theological issues would you have to wrestle with? Do we still need something like that? Are we exilic? Are we, you know, how, there's so many confusions that come up. It's one of the reasons why Gentile believers tend to avoid the book of Hebrews, but I think that that is an absolute mistake. Um, for the same reason why avoiding the Old Testament is a mistake. Uh, it is the whole ground and um, base of what Christianity grew out of on purpose. And so to understand how much better Christ is than all this, the book of Hebrews is given to the scriptures to, to teach Christians that when you think that going back to sacrifices would be better, simply because you can see and feel and smell and everything that's going on, you can actually just experience salvation uh, in such a way that that's not actually better because temporal by nature it's not going to enact something permanent the same goes with everything the design of the tabernacle how many how many christians would have a hard time if there was just a singular church in the world we see it with the catholic church for instance there's reverence towards the building and towards those who staff it things like the vatican and so forth it happens in the Eastern Church. It happens in Protestant churches. Um, the, this desire to focus in on a single thing, a tabernacle, a person, a priesthood, uh, sacrifices, something that we can control, something that we can manipulate in some way. The whole book of Hebrews comes out and says, Christ is better than all of this. He says, not only because those things were temporal, but because they were just shadows of something in heaven. Right? The goats and the bulls did not actually perfect us from our sins. And the tabernacle itself, he says, is just a reflection of something in heaven, which is a bit of an enigmatic uh, reference that we're not going to deal with hugely, uh, but it's something to keep in mind. Um, so when we set into chapter 9, we will see kind of the, the limits of the earthly holy place. Let's, let's pick up the argument there. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, right? Makes sense. The temple or the tabernacle, especially originally uh, a tabernacle, a tent was prepared. In the first section, in which there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies, if you're working with an older uh, English translation. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn containing manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the table or the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, you guys know all of this stuff, right? He's writing to Jewish people. He's, you know all of these things. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. 
But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he, but only once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers not just for the unintentional sins of his people, but also for himself. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, this is just fascinating. The Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, uh, with all of this, expressed to us the nature in which the covenants would come to us. That there was layers in this covenant. That even the priests, when they're doing their normal things, is not the most holy place. It's not heaven. It is, it is a halfway place. It is a partial solution for this. right? The system that was set up for the Levitical priest uh, to be able to come to the presence of God was stymied by yet another veil. In other words, it was by very nature and design shown to be temporary. The, the, the pursuit of holiness itself uh, was, was limited. Now, he expresses to us, again, the same Holy Spirit that is working in the church by the writing of the book of Hebrews is well known. We've been going through everything chronologically. This, the gifts that he is giving, the miracles he is working... The writer of Hebrews says the same spirit that is doing that is, is the same spirit who gave these instructions in the first place. And so there is correlation, there is, um, there is uh, familiarity, there is consistency across the way. And so it shouldn't surprise us that actually the first section is symbolic for the present age. And he says, he says to them, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. The idea of the holy place being symbolic for the age of the law, shall we call it, or the age of um, the, the temple, the physical uh, aspects of these things is... Really a fantastic aspect of this. But we're studying the Holy Spirit here. We're not primarily studying the design of the temple or anything like that. But he is expressing to us that the same spirit that is working in the church is the same spirit that was working through the nation of Israel and the temple even back then. And so then he's going to show us how the Holy Spirit has made such a thing so much better. Look at verse 11. But, and you'll always see this come up in, in the book of Hebrews, you'll see these conjunctions that attach the old covenant to the old way to the new covenant and the new way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, in other words, we've entered a new age, then through the greater and more perfect tent, one not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and, uh, or the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? In other words, Jesus is better, which is the subtext of everything here. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, <laughs> paraphrase it, Jesus is so much better than the tabernacle, than the sacrifices, than the priesthood, than the holy place. 
than the bread of presence. He is better than the Ark of the Covenant. He is better than all of these things. He is even better than the high priest who once a year was only able to enter into the Holy of Holies and only then by offering blood for himself so he could temporarily be purified enough to set foot in there. You know, there was actually even a story of the high priest when he would go in. It was such a dangerous aspect and there was such risk attached to it. Maybe they didn't do all the ceremonies just right and God would strike him dead in the Holy of Holies. Then what? You just leave him in there? Nobody else can go in. And so there was an instance in, uh, in Jewish history where they would actually tie a rope to his leg just in case they didn't do everything right. And so they could drag him back out. That's not the type of covenant we have. We have something much better. The high priest is not bringing in somebody else's blood. He's bringing in his own blood. He has not just entered into the earthly tent. He himself describes himself as the temple of God, right? His own body. This is, this is one of those realities of, of temple understanding that really, really helps. Uh, and so I always kind of remind people of this when you're dealing with temples and tabernacles, that there have been many temples throughout history. There are some who argue that uh, the Garden of Eden was actually a temple in the world. Makes sense. It actually is formatted the same way. Um, it is likely that Adam and Eve would have acted on some priestly role on behalf of humans. Um, they had a responsibility to tell everyone the law of God. Uh, this is one of the reasons why when we look into the tabernacle when it was first designed, there was pictures of fruit trees and all sorts of things that called back to the way of life being hidden behind what was also on the veil. If anyone doesn't know, when the temple was built, does anyone know what was painted on the veil of the temple? Cherubim, guarding the way. Same thing that happened outside the Garden of Eden. So there's, there's plenty of reason to consider the Garden of Eden, the first temple, kind of a primordial one and a very natural one, almost like its own hedge around. Pretty, pretty interesting, um, which is why we have talking serpents and God walking around in the cool of the day, because it's a place where heaven and earth cross over. Um, so it's, it shouldn't surprise us that we see Satan as a serpent. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise Adam and Eve, right? They're there. What are they served with? Plenty and food and protection and life. The tree of life is there. And what we always think, everyone always tried to depict, at least in, in pictures, like the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as like this diseased bad tree or something. No, no, no. It looked great. You know why? Because that is an attribute of God. And we took it and we couldn't bear it. So inside the garden, there was nothing wrong until there was. So when we, when we experience this, we see that there's actually been several other temples along the way. Ones that we don't even know. We know they existed, but we have no descriptions of. Things like Melchizedek. He was the priest king of ancient Salem before it was even known as Jerusalem. What was he doing there? We don't know. We don't know. Life was going on. Sacrifices were being made before the law ever came to the Jewish people. We know because it predates Abraham. What temple was he serving in? We have no idea. When Israel went to Egypt and they were set free, 
God in the book of Exodus gave them the instructions for the tabernacle. A, a, an entire temple that was to be mobile, that was to be there for the people, and that was to travel with them wherever they go because they were nomadic at the time, they were wandering, and they did not yet have a homeland. And so their, their temple was literally a mobile, skin-covered place where heaven and earth met. And so they would set up the tabernacle, and what would happen if you read Exodus? For all of the years that they were wandering, what happened when they moved, they set up the temple, or they set up the tabernacle? Does anyone remember what would happen, the very next thing? We tend to only associate this with the crossing of the Red Sea, but... Uh, I always call it what is, I think, a little bit more of a... Uh, of would be a, a more terrifying thing and more accurate is a fire tornado sat on top of the tabernacle for decades. Now imagine grumbling that you don't like God's bread while that fire tornado is right there on top of the tabernacle wherever you travel. The only reason they knew where to wander is because the fire tornado would leave the temple, the tabernacle, and start going down the path. And so, okay, we'll break everything down and we'll follow the fire tornado. Then it sets up a place, they build the tabernacle there, tornado comes back and sits on top of it. And you're carrying out sacrifices and everything while that's there. That's a pretty insane thing. This is one of the reasons why when we come to Jericho, uh, what is it that Rahab says? All the people's hearts are melting, essentially, because we know who you're traveling with. We know what happens when you set foot anywhere you intend to go. The tabernacle was the place of God meeting with his people for centuries. Centuries. All the way through the judges, uh, all the way through Saul. It wasn't even until the end of David's reign that he made plans to make, instead of a, um, instead of a temporary tent, instead of a, um, a mobile one, he wanted to make a solid one. He wanted to make a temple that never moved. Right there at the top of Mount uh, Zion in Jerusalem. And so, but uh, God says you have killed too many people. Temples are an aspect of life, not an aspect of death. Your son will build this. You can purchase all of the stuff, all the cedars from Lebanon, all the gold, all the everything. You can get everything ready, but you can't put one stone on top of another. Because temples are supposed to be the place where life comes into this world. And it wasn't wrong that David had killed his tens of thousands. He was the king of Israel. That was what was on him at that day. There was enemies all over. War is necessary uh, at times in history. So that his son Solomon built the next temple. And so all of a sudden, for the first time, the temple is not made of, of skin or of hedges and of trees. Instead, we make, well, it still has cedars in it, stone, gold, huge doors, massive design, right? It's the tabernacle, which was actually smaller than this building. The temple is enormous by comparison, absolutely enormous. And he built that, and then all of a sudden, so then the temple is a solid thing. And then that gets destroyed in the 6th century by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar and all those. And then it goes for several uh, decades, and then they come back and they rebuild it in the time of Haggai, at the very close of the Old Testament. They rebuild Zerubbabel's temple, which there was 
those who had been alive and had seen Solomon's temple as children. They had been carried away to exile, and here, 70, 80 years later, they come back and they're building this temple, and they weep because of how much smaller it is compared to Solomon's temple. And when they ordained the temple, when they consecrated it, the glory of the Lord did not come to that temple. More reason to weep. Right? You can read, you can take those two stories of the consecration of Solomon's temple and the consecration of Zerubbabel's temple and compare them. It's hard. It's a pretty rough story uh, to see that. And then that temple carried on. It had problems. It was updated by Herod, which is the temple that was standing when Jesus was there. He walks into it and he says, you see this temple, all these stones? He says, not one stone is put on to another that will not be taken down. He says, in fact, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it back again. And the gospel writers tell us, he says, He's talking about his body. And you go, wait, since when is a temple a body? How, how does that comport to anything that temples have ever been? Say, so, well, it does comport. And this is what the argument of the book of Hebrews says. It not only does comport, this is actually a fulfillment of what temples were originally supposed to be, an aspect of nature. Look back to the tabernacle, not the plans of man, which were the temples, stone, solid, building. Tabernacle was the one that God gave them. Skin covered, inside is life, but you are prevented from going in because the way is guarded by cherubim. Uh, inside is the Holy of Holies. And here the writer of Hebrews is saying, this whole thing was meant to show them the temporal nature of it. And now that Christ has come, there's no holy place in Christ and holy of holies in Christ. There's just God. So it's not even just heaven and earth crossing over, which is what a temple is to be. This is now God and man crossed over, which breaks all of our categories. And we try to, we spent the first thousand years of church councils trying to figure out how that works. Does he have one nature? Two, does he have two uh, wills or one will? Does he wrestle in himself between God and humanity? Like is when he's tempted, how is God tempted to sin? Is it... Let's just go with what scripture says. He is both God and man. And the earliest councils will bring this out. He is truly God and he is truly man. We're going to kind of stop there a little bit because we don't know exactly what that means other than to say what we were hoping for is heaven on earth. What we got is God and man. And then we didn't just get God showing up as a leader. Or as an example, we actually got God showing up as everything. Temple, priest, high priest, holy of holies, blood, sacrifice, hope, heaven. Everything is wrapped up in him. That's why this book is being written. He says the effect of this is that the same spirit that was working in giving the first covenant is the same spirit that came upon Christ at his baptism and enacted these things. Knowing all of that, where is the temple today? Is it still the body of Christ? Yeah, I, yeah the air quotes of yes. And we are the body of Christ. The church is called both the temple of the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ for a reason. Because the only reason we are able to do anything in Christian fellowship is because of the Holy Spirit. Everything else is us. All of our bickerings, all of our arguments, all of our power struggles, that's just us. 
Anything supernatural that goes on between Christians is not owed to us, that is owed to the Spirit of God. Because we, when we assemble together, notice again, skin covered, mobile, just like Christ, just like the tabernacle, it's us. Calling us the body of Christ, the book of Ephesians will bear out. Calling us the body of Christ is simply showing us that he is the head. That there is actually none of us that is the head of the body of Christ. We are all members of the body of Christ. He is the head. Our marching orders come from him. And so, the reference here in verse 14 that we run across, knowing that background, when he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, they're the entire trinity, by the way, don't miss that, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, because the spirit of God has done this through all the temples and through Christ, and is now working through us, we no longer do dead works in a way that purifies our conscience. We don't hope in our own works. What's the point? It purifies our conscience from dead works and instead gives us the desire and the base to serve the living God. And so he says, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, the first covenant was only sufficient to show us our sin. The blood and bulls and goats and calves could not actually purify us in any meaningful sense. Now Christ has come and has done this. And he has done that through the Spirit who gave those things in the first place. The book of Hebrews is a remarkable testament to the consistency of God from Genesis all the way to the end of the world. Because it's the same Spirit who has done this. It is the same God who has done this. It is the same revelation. He even starts out with that. God used to speak to us in all sorts of ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. His Son, who gave us apostles, that from that one generation came the entire New Testament, and now no more Scripture. It was by design. The book of Hebrews even talks about it. Okay? All right, book of Hebrews done. Let's go to 2 Timothy. We go to 2 Timothy because there's a quick reference there that we need. And it is also chronologically the next reference. And then we'll sit down in 2 Peter 1 for the last part of class today. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, just for the context here, um, Paul has written to Timothy, now uh, he wrote in this first letter, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Oh, I can actually sh turn off this mic. Oh, that works too, I guess. Okay. Um... Yeah. Do you know where to shut that off? Okay, behind the laptop that has the slideshow on it, there's, there's a thing back there that, that turns up all these mics. Just turn it off. It's got a blue rocker switch on it. Thank you. We'll pause class for just a second here.
There we go. Ah, the bliss of silence. <laughs> Alrighty. Alright. Thank you. Alright, now we'll get back to it. Alright. Uh, so when Paul writes to Timothy a second time, uh, Paul, again, we're following everything chronologically, so 2 Timothy, best as we can push together, uh, occurs after the writing of the book of Hebrews, here right as Paul is about to go and die. Um, 2 Timothy and Titus, uh, maybe Philemon, uh, are the last things that uh, Paul writes uh, before he, no, not Philemon, Philemon came before that. So 2 Timothy and Titus are the last thing he writes. He encourages Timothy, who is the bishop of Ephesus, and Titus, who may have been the bishop of Crete, but we're not entirely sure. Um, he was there setting up and planting churches. He was more like a church planter in the island of Crete. Um, and Paul is encouraging them as he is waiting for his last trial, which will end with his beheading. So he is writing to Timothy. This is the last thing he writes to him. He's been kind of a mentor to Timothy for a few decades, actually. And so um, he encourages them in all of these things. This is some of the last stuff he says to him. Second Timothy, we're going to just be in chapter 1, verses 18, uh, 8 through 14. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but instead share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again, consistency. This is one of the things that you will see the New Testament uh, closing out chronologically, the reminders to the church, whether Jew or Gentile, that this is not a new message. This is not something we devised up with cleverly devised fables. You'll see Peter writing that. Actually, we did not follow cleverly devised fables. Why would we follow this? If we made this up, it makes no sense whatsoever. But there's a consistency to this. Before all the ages began, God had intended this, and he didn't tell us. The salvation of the Gentiles was simply only foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It was not explicitly taught. There was aspects of it. There was pieces of it. But that the church would be primarily Gentile, and only at the very end, according to Romans 11, will it also include a ton of ethnic Jews. We have nothing of that in the Old Testament. Nothing. Zero. In fact, there is no way you could piece that together and then Christ shows up and then you look back and you go like, oh, that's why Rahab was welcomed into Israel. Oh, that's why the story of Ruth uh, happened. That's, that's why Naaman the Hittite was baptized essentially into purification. That's why Jonah was sent to Nineveh. That, oh man, and all of a sudden, this is why Egyptians got to join some of the Israelites uh, in the Exodus. Like pieces and bits and parts of it start fitting together and you're like oh yeah that's right because even noah wasn't israelite neither was adam or seth or anyone in fact there was thousands of years of history that the scriptures just don't talk to us about when god was completely active and you go oh man the book of job he wasn't israelite either and you start just kind of thinking about there's a lot of stuff that has happened that we kind of should have in retrospect seen, but the reality is we can't, right? You see Jesus on the road to Emmaus speaking to two of his disciples. And if there's ever a conversation that you would want to eavesdrop on, that one is it. If you ever get asked to you know, uh, test out a new time, uh, time machine 
and you want to see something or view something, that conversation of Jesus to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus would be the one I promise you, you'd want to hear. Because it says, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets, he showed them how they were all of them pointing to him. And we get no details. We just know that the knowledge of that was given to the disciples. They absolutely shared it about. And then things like the book of Hebrews, things like the book of Galatians, are written in tandem with it. And all of a sudden we can see the tie-ins everywhere. Can you imagine hearing from Jesus' own resurrected mouth? Remember the tabernacle? Remember the tree of life? You remember the guarded way? You know how during my death, the veil that had the painted cherubims on it in the temple was torn in two from heaven down to earth, not earth up to heaven? You can't do a darn thing. It says, I, I can't even imagine the amount of things he told them. Because that's not a short path. And he was able to start all the way in the back and just run through it all and show them, this is not a thread through this, it's a stinking huge rope and an anchor chain back to the foundation of the creation all the way through the history of Israel down to his birth. It's incredible. I mean, you see aspects of it just show up. You look at, for instance... Show us how little we know about this. Why did the Magi show up at Jesus' early childhood? Can anyone even answer that question? I have yet to find anyone able to answer it. The best theory that we have is that God told Daniel something back seven centuries before, excuse me, not seven centuries, five centuries beforehand, and we don't know what it was. He was the head of the Magi in Persia. They were looking for stars. You read the Old Testament? I read the Old Testament. Where in there can you look at the stars and figure out where Jesus is going to be born? We don't know anything about that. We don't have any history about that. And yet they were so accurate about it that they were able to get within two miles of where he lived. They came to Jerusalem, which you go, oh, wow, they only got to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is down the hill. They come to Jerusalem and they're like, yep. We know he's here somewhere. Who is he? Where is he? We've come to worship him. Herod looks at them and he goes like, wait, who? They said, the king of the Jews. He's like, I'm the king of the Jews. It's like, no, no, no. He's born. He's like, I didn't have a kid yet. Oh. <laughs> and so they asked the Pharisees, where is he to be born? They're like, well, the Messiah is supposed to be born. There's two Bethlehems. We know exactly which one. We got it all figured out. He's born in that Bethlehem right there. This is one of the things that Jesus expresses to Yeah, there's two Bethlehems, yep. In, in Hebrew, Bethlehem just means uh, Beth is house, uh, Lachem, uh, uh, house of bread. Uh, and so it is, it is just, it's not an unusual term, but Bethlehem Ephrata, this, it's a specific Bethlehem. It's just the one that's the offshoot from Jerusalem. And so they were able to figure out exactly which one it was, where it is. Yeah, that's where he's going to be born. This is why Jesus comes so hard on the Pharisees, because they knew exactly where he had come from. They knew all of his works. They knew his words. And it was actually them who announced that very aspect of his own birth at the same time with his exact age. They knew it. They knew exactly who he was. And these foreign magicians, yes, that's what magi means, came to worship him. Do we know anything about what in the world was going on in Persia that God had expressed to them this? No, nobody does. 
So in all of this, we understand that these things have happened since the beginning of the ages. There is, a, there is a promise that goes back that is not just to the Jewish people, that Christ is being expressed. Now, here, this is a remarkable thing, because Timothy himself is half Jewish and half Gentile. His mother was Jewish, his father was Greek, which is why he has a Greek name. But so then he's also the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and so he's encouraging me, he says, look, don't be ashamed of suffering for the gospel. In fact, that's actually kind of the design of these things. Share in the suffering for the, uh, for the gospel by the power of God. He saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You are not just an add-on to what God is doing, you as a Gentile. He's encouraging him. Now remember, Paul is a previous Pharisee a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, all this kind of stuff. And he's like, you are not an addendum. You too were called before the ages started. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. In other words, what God had ordained before the ages were, now is made obvious. Before here, it wasn't, and by nature. It was manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. An incredible reference. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle, sent one, and teacher, which is why I'm suffering. Because God gave it to me. Remarkable reference. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced that he is able to guard it until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Don't lose heart. Notice he's not telling him to go out and do all these miracles and signs and wonders if your faith gets you know, smashed down by the occurrences and circumstances of life. No, he says, only by the Holy Spirit are we able to guard the good deposit entrusted to us. The gift of faith that God has given us, where in any situation, suffering or anticipating your very soon-to-be beheading, as Paul is while he's writing this, what an, ex what an access to go through these things. It's not going to be your own fortitude. It won't be worth it. Thus ends the letters of Paul for the Holy Spirit. He's not focused on gifts. He's not focused primarily on speaking in tongues. He's not focused on any of these things. In fact, he's just focused on preserving faith in the midst of trials. It doesn't mean that all those gifts had stopped. It just means that when the chips are all down and the end of life is approaching, the possibility of despondency is high. And our confidence should never come from great signs and wonders and works and all these things. No, just from a steady faith in Christ, no matter the circumstances, which in and of itself is actually a spiritual gift. Okay, we have time for 2 Peter 1. Let's do it. Notice how Paul and Peter are both making references um, to not experience, but to the purposes of God that are behind everything that happens. 
Watch the way Peter talks about this. 2 Peter 1 addresses it again. Peter most likely is in Rome with Paul at this time. It seems that he is. And he is about to be killed himself during Nero's persecution by being crucified according to a later story. Listen to what he says. He assures people. Now, now this is Peter's last writing to anybody. He assures everyone. He says, we, verse 16, chapter 1. We did not follow. Notice, notice the past tense. He knows he's about to die too. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now stop for a second. What's Peter talking about? There's two times where the Father said that. There's baptism, but Peter wasn't there yet. He wasn't following Christ. There was another one that Peter got to witness, and that was on the Mount of Transfiguration, which only Peter, James, and John saw, and Jesus didn't let them tell anybody until after he was risen from the dead. Right? And so Peter comes back, and he uses that as a base for a whole generation that is trying to trust in Christ, having never seen him, because that's what's going on in the church now. In the mid-60s, there are people coming to faith in Christ that never met Christ. It's the first time that ever happened. And so what Peter is doing is saying, look, we are eyewitnesses of this. I'm telling you, I would not be enduring the suffering and the now martyrdom that faces me if I just made this up. He says, you want to know? He says, all of you who wish you were standing on the Mount of Transfiguration so that your faith can be grounded, all of you that want those signs and wonders, all these things, he says, look, we saw this majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something much better than that. The prophetic word. which you will do well to pay attention. He speaks of the scriptures. You will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let me get to what he's saying here. You think that you would trust in Christ better if you were able to witness the Mount of Transfiguration. He says it's not so. What we have in the scriptures is better than that. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, you want to know how scripture is better than experience or tradition? No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21, watch the Holy Spirit's involvement in scripture from Genesis all the way through. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, from Moses all the way through to the very thing that Peter is writing as his life is coming to an end, it is the Holy Spirit that has done all of this. So when we come to the scriptures, 
excuse me, I asked a question several months ago. I said, when somebody comes up to you and says, you know, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you to go do this, thus says the Lord, what's my response? No. No. Do you know why? Because unless it comes from Scripture, the Holy Spirit did not speak to you in this age. That's not how it works. You could offer me to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration or to travel with Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. That or the scriptures? Which do you want? Peter says, you best wish for the scriptures. It is so much better than just the experience and the memory. Memories fade. Experiences are temporal. The scriptures are eternal. Experiences came through your eyes and your hands. You can misinterpret things, can't you? You ever misinterpreted what somebody said to you? Yep. You can misinterpret your experiences. You can misremember. It happens with witnesses all the time. And so what he says is, we have something so much better. He says to this generation of Christians that will never see a miracle of Christ. He says, I stood there for three and a half years watching miracle after miracle. Peter was welcomed in to watch Jesus raise someone from the dead. All of that will trade all of that just for the scriptures. And so when somebody tells me that the Holy Spirit told them to tell me this, one of the quick questions I ask them is, how much time do they spend in the scriptures? Because if they're so infatuated with what the Holy Spirit is saying, I promise you, their time in the scriptures, if it happens at all, is self-focused. It has nothing to do with worshiping God as he is. It has everything to do with, I just want cool answers to cool things. I want to figure out the future. I want to come here so that my desires are fulfilled rather than that my desires be set aside so that I could desire those things that God desires. Almost invariably. So when we, when we make up our mind, we say, you know, I want to know what the Holy Spirit's saying to me. And people go, oh, well, just go into a closet and meditate and be quiet and you'll hear him. No, you won't. There's absolutely nothing in scripture that says that you can hear God's voice in your head. None. And I I defy anyone. I have walked through every single reference to the Holy Spirit everywhere in scripture multiple times. Nowhere is it, I just sat really quiet and I figured out what God wanted me to do. You want to know what God says? God has spoken. It's his word. Go to the scriptures. There you do hear the word of God. I am not saying that God does not speak to our hearts. He certainly does, but he does it through his word. We see this even in the opening of the book of Hebrews. Many times and in various ways and various places, God has spoken in time past through his prophets in all sorts of different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, when we read the Old Testament, we should expect that God was doing bizarro things. And all sorts of strange things. And you don't think it's odd. Go read the story of Ezekiel. Strange and bizarre as it gets. The story of Jeremiah. Jonah, that's a crazy story. He doesn't just send a prophet to Nineveh because we think at the beginning that's all that God has in mind. No, God had in mind to save two groups of people. The people in Nineveh and the men on the ship to Tarshish. And so who is the perfect person to choose for that? Jonah, because once I tell him to go to Nineveh, he's going to hightail it like a cowardly little bunny and go to Tarshish. 
And then through that disobedience, God will save the guys on the ship, have Jonah barfed out by a fish over here so that he bears the sign of death, so that when he walks into Nineveh, the king looks at a guy who is obviously dead and brought back to life, and the entire city repents. No other prophet could have done that. When we think just this, this, we miss that God's ways are so much higher than the way we think. The same thing when it comes to his revelation. He did all sorts of bizarre things there, foreshadowing and previewing what his plan was for the ages. Now we have come to the last days. And whether those last days are a thousand more years or 7,000 more years, it is irrelevant. We live at a time where the scriptures are present with us because God has preserved them. And his spirit not only illumined them or uh, inspired them in the past, past tense, preserved them in the past and is preserving them today so that Christians will always be able somewhere to read his word. But when we come together, you want to see where the spirit of God is enacting on your hearts? When you read the scriptures, do they change your desires? That's a huge question. Because just like he inspired the scriptures and carried along those who are writing them, he does the same thing for those who are hearing them and reading them. God, give us ears to hear. You ever hear me pray this? God, give us eyes to see. This is why. Because our desires typically and naturally will be away from the things of the Lord. There will be the assertion of ourselves over the, somebody else. I want to do this even if I know it's wrong. That is, that is us. I want to do this because it's right even if it costs me something, even if it brings about great suffering, even if it is frustrating, I want to do this because I know that God has clearly instructed us to do so in his word. I don't have a desire to suffer, do you? No. No. Next week, we will be in Jude and the epistles of John, some of the last things letters written to the church and then we'll finish off with the last thing written to the church which uh, is a really good bookend for the new testament that is the book of revelation which does not mention the spirit as much as you think it would but a remarkable thing nonetheless let's pray as we stop today right on time our father we are very grateful uh, for your word and we do confess that at times we do not give it you know, scratch that. At all times, we think of it less than you do. We pray that you raise our view of your word higher. We pray that you use even our sufferings to bring that about. And that we become grateful in the midst of trial and difficulties, knowing that the attested genuineness of our faith, in addition to producing patience, demonstrates for us the outcome of our faith, which, as your word says, is the salvation of our souls. We thank you for foreshadowing even the eternal state in the giving of your Holy Spirit to your church, that we may see just pieces of heaven shine through in the things that do not have its origin in us. We are thankful for these things, Father. We pray that they be increasing and on the mend. In your Son's name, amen.